Welcome, welcome. You're listening to our podcast, Two Massage Therapists in a Microphone. My name is Mark. I'm a registered massage therapist, registered kinesiologist here in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And we've got a real cool guest sitting in our office today. He's hanging out on our chair, not on our couch. No one ever sits on our couch anymore. I wonder why. It's really bothering me. You sure you don't want us on the couch? <laughs> no, I'm good. Thanks. It looks I'm really right. comfortable. Look at it. It's comfortable. <laughs> I swear it is. Um, Scott is an RMT and he's going to talk to us about some cool technology stuff with regards to the assessments and the assessments process and improving every aspect of the industry with assessment tools. He came down from Barrie, Ontario, probably cold and snowy up there. It sure is, yeah. Lots of deep snow. Right on, right on. Amanda's uh, harboring up on the couch. Uh, Yep, I'm sitting on the couch. Hey guys, it's Amanda. And Mark already did the introduction, so there's really not much for me to do. We are sitting here today with Scott Griswold, whom, by the way, fun fact, I have been calling Scott Griswold since we came into contact. I feel like there should be a Ford Country squire with a big wood paneling on the side and we should be pelting down the highway who doesn't like national lampoons anyway scott and i connected a couple weeks ago to talk about some of the stuff he's doing uh he's the owner of the shockwave center in barry and he uses different sorts of technology in his assessments which are giving him sort of empirical data, right? Objective evidence. Uh, Yeah, objective evidence to be able to improve the treatments process. And I mean, in this industry, there's so many different schools of thought and there's so many different types of therapists. And uh, I like to learn what everybody's doing uh, because I think you can learn something of value from most practitioners. So thanks for coming in today. For sure. I think think this particular topic isn't uh, all that well known or talked about. Um, in the industry, we spend a lot of time uh, looking at research papers, which uh, I do myself uh, on a daily basis. The thing is, the we, we put so much uh, emphasis on delivering the correct uh, message or, or the, the science-based narrative, if you will. And we've all but turned upside down pretty much our whole way of thinking in the profession as to what's real and what's not real just out of curiosity yeah. what was the last paper you read because i'm 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 really into I, i'm in a couple of facebook groups of evidence-based practice and so on so i'm really interested into what what people are reading the the last one uh i read and i i emailed it into you was the foot core system and uh it's a paper that i'm quite interested in because i've been paying attention to what it talks about uh in this paper because you know i'm not a doctor and you know, there's a lot of people out there that are a whole lot smarter than me. I try to find evidence that substantiates what my beliefs are that fall into line with, with what I'm thinking. And I do spend a lot of time paying attention to uh, mid-arch stimulation and how that affects the nervous system. So we'll go over this paper as we go along the, the interview, but um, you'll understand, you know, why why the interest and, and why I picked this particular paper for today. Yeah, and as Mark said, uh, we follow some of the evidence-based practice groups on Facebook. And I understand research, and I'm sure you've heard me talk about this on the podcast before, and I probably sound like I'm saying, you guys, stop with the research. Uh, I don't think we shouldn't be looking at research. Um, But I think it's caused, like, exactly like you said, like we're all turned upside down. And uh, it has many therapists probably thinking like, has anything I've been doing up to this point been worth anything? Yeah. And, you know, I'm on the side that, yeah, it is. Yep. And I think there's a place for research. 
Um, but I also think that having something like this technology maybe might give people a better understanding of what's actually happening versus just the research. Well, it's not even that. Like in Canada, I think it's a little different because of our education and the amount of education that we have. When we have guests from south of the border, that's when it's a whole other setup between there's a massive divide. There's this camp, evidence-based practice, research people yeah. over here. And I feel like they're standing on a battle line at war with the woo of the industry. And that's that's a huge thing that I've noticed with all of our, our guests from down south. Eh, a little less here. but Yeah, maybe a little less here. Okay, well, then let's get into it. Scott, uh, tell us what you're doing differently and what types of technology you're using in your practice. Okay, well, I'll get into that. I just wanted to hit on that, on that last point there that, you know, such emphasis is, is put on, on research and delivering a science-based or evidence-based narrative. And my wish would be that we put as much emphasis on, on our assessments and being as accurate with our assessments as possible. And in order to do that, we have to understand what's happened in the last, you know, 10, 10 years or so with regards to assessment-based technology, which has largely gone hand-in-hand with how fast processors of, of computers are going in order to be able to, to take the kind of data in the volumes that we take it in order to get uh, you know, information that we can use. We need high-powered computers to do so. What I do differently, if you will, is I incorporate technology into my practice. Uh, Shockwave being one, one thing, uh, I started that in 2006 when uh, the equipment first came available. And uh, I started using that and following the typical protocols, the clinically studied uh, uh, protocols that they, they teach you. And because I'm kind of an inquisitive sort of fella, I started experimenting on myself with the Shockwave machine and realizing, dang, this thing's pretty powerful. It's way more powerful than a an activator, if you will, if somebody were to look at, quote, releasing a joint through an activator. So I started playing around with it. And what I found was that in my perception, I could release a joint. In my perception, I could increase the mobility of tissue. Okay, can I just pause you for yeah. a second? Because I see where this is going. And uh, I know we're not here to talk about shockwave therapy. Um, but for anybody listening, can you just explain what shockwave technology is? And why and how you decided to get into it. That's kind of a jump from, you know, manual therapy, traditionally what you learn in school to, you know, and I'm going to yeah. start with shockwave. I happened to know, you know, some doctors in the sports uh, medicine field, and I was basically alerted to the fact that this new technology was coming. Uh, I researched it. I liked uh, the level of science that it came with, and they didn't release it to, to clinics until they had a raft of, of uh, clinical trials on its regenerative properties with regards to tissue. So shockwave is high-pressure sound waves. It's not electricity. Initially, it was discovered through underwater bombing in the South Pacific. What happened to people swimming a number of miles away from these underwater bombs and what it did to them, they looked at the tissue of these poor souls and said, wow, that's pretty 
pretty amazing what sound can do traveling through water to tissue. What did it do to Kind of shred them a bit, killed them, yeah. right? Just like it would uh, affect uh, dolphins and, and, and whales and so forth, right? So something the size of an atomic bomb underwater, mm-hmm. those, those pressure waves go through the water and affect anything that's in its path. So if you're close enough, it's strong enough to, to say goodnight. So they looked at that and scientists go, wow, that's pretty impressive. I wonder what we could do in a controlled environment. And so they started looking at uh, the first generation of shockwave is lithotripsy, where they use sound waves to break up gallstones, kidney stones. Second generation is MSK, musculoskeletal, studied to uh, regenerate damaged tissue through neovascularization and break up calcification with in the same manner through the pulsing uh, sound waves as uh, lithotripsy. So calcified rotator cuff tendons, heel spurs, things of that nature. So I had shockwave therapy done one time, not in, in a real treatment. I was working with a chiropractor who was going to start offering shockwave therapy in our clinic, mm-hmm. and he just wanted me to feel it. And so I had had some lateral epicondylitis issues, mm. and he used this little device, whatever it is, on my elbow. Yeah, it was a very bizarre feeling. I couldn't believe how powerful it was. But um, even that maybe two seconds that he worked on me, like it was really, really brief. I did actually feel a difference. It was kind of cool. So I knew nothing about it. I didn't know about any of this atomic bomb stuff, which is very interesting. (laughs) But it's, yeah, it's, it was something different. And uh, his patients loved it. So yeah, I liked it right from the get-go. What I I had rotator cuff tendonitis when I when I first met Dr. Gordon, and one treatment I felt significantly better after one treatment. You know, again, this is all subjective and anecdotal, and we all seem to go back, you know, to to this kind of stuff. And you know, whether any technique, any modality, whether it's shockwave or anything out there. What I like about technology is that we can test those claims, mm-hmm. right? So you know, here I am, I'm the wise guy that you know, thinks that he's developed this new technique for releasing joints and, and, and tissue. And I clearly recognize that, one, I'm not a researcher, two, I'm not a doctor, and three, I need help and credibility for people to believe what I'm saying. So if I'm saying that I'm releasing joints or fascia, I should be able to produce something that, that would indicate exactly what I'm saying. So that was a... a one of the reasons why I got into assessment technologies was because of what I had done with, with Shockwave and being able to substantiate what I was saying with regards to Shockwave. Okay, so let's get into the assessments technology then. Yeah, you so... You take us through what types of technology exists and uh, what you have found in your practice with it. Well, first of all, with regards to technology, like from a disclosure standpoint, I work closely with developers and doctors that have developed these equipments and so forth that I use particularly. I'm not going to mention any brand names. I'm not here to to advertise. I'm just here to discuss what this technology can can offer. At some points in times, it'll seem like I'm dancing around it. But the different types of technologies that I have, um, I consider myself having a, a mobile performance lab. Uh, mine is a VO2 max machine. But I have the ability through different technologies to objectively measure um, gate analysis with an accuracy uh, to a millisecond. We're able to monitor muscle uh, contraction through surface EMG, so we can look at the quality of muscle contraction. You know, when we hear people talk about techniques of neural this and neural that and whatever, it all sounds, you know, interesting and so forth. And again, we may be able to see short-term effects, you know, in the seminar, in the treatment table right away. But 
what does the nervous system tell us? So if my understanding is correct with regards to research lately, we aren't stretching what we thought we're stretching. We're not breaking down adhesions like we thought we were. There's a whole lot of stuff, like I said, we we don't know what we're doing. So if it amounts to an interaction between nervous systems is going on in our treatment session, and it's a nervous system thing that gives us the appearance of release of a joint or, or, or tissue, then why aren't we measuring parameters of the nervous system that we can accurately measure. Things like a force plate, for example, there was uh, a Facebook post that I'm going to refer to back in October of 18, and it was somebody that uh, had written in about a patient that they were co-treating with a physiotherapist, and they talked about doing uh, one-leg balance training to increase proprioception, get the brain talking to the feet faster, so on and so forth. And The problem was that the patient thought that they were getting worse with regards to balance. So 19 people responded, the last time I checked, to to this post. And honestly, you know, kudos for creativity for all the different ways of looking at that one particular problem. It was impressive, as far as I could uh, tell. But the problem is that nobody knew for sure. This was his perception that he thought. So thought was the operative word. And If he was coming into a clinic, in my clinic, I would have him on a force plate. So he's recovering from an ankle injury of some description. I think it was a broken ankle. Each time they come in, for for the matter of taking a a 10-second test and looking at how much we sway and how fast we correct that sway or the speed of the sway, one, we can tell what is happening with our interventions if we're testing before and after treatment. Mm -hmm. So two, we would have, in that particular scenario we would have objective data as to whether or not he was correct in his assumption. Because this whole thing could have been for naught. Right. It could have been his perception that he was getting worse. Because if you're just using a timer, that's not accurate. Simple. Okay? So when we use force plates or gyrometers, accelerometers, we're, we're measuring how much sway, how much area that we're using when, the, when we sway, and how fast that sway happens. So... Somebody recovering from an ankle injury, their balance is going to be compromised, so they're going to be using a large area, and they're likely to be falling fast when they do fall. We apply intervention, again, for the sake of a 10-second test, before and after. In that scenario, we would have built a database of at least, if they came in, let's say for four treatments, eight before and after samplings. We would know objectively if that person was digressing. And why that's important is that what if he had a highly aggressive uh, glioblastoma in the cerebellum? You know, something that is not too uncommon with regards to cancer rates. That particular kind may be uncommon. But the point being is that we would have subclinical data that we are able to precisely track how much and measure how much sway happens and how fast the person's falling over. Mm -hmm. So the velocity of the sway. So using this data, if I saw somebody coming in and they were retrograding with regards to ability to balance with no apparent reason, no no fall, no mechanical injury, no apparent reason, and they're retrograding with their ability to balance, I would be referring out ASAP to somebody that can investigate further than what I can. Now, that's kind of an extreme scenario. Um, Yeah, I mean, it makes the point in that if we all, if the only evidence we have is, okay, now stand there, stand on one foot and we're timing it, is the reason for the lack of balance 
the angle at all. I, I mean, it, it makes the point very yeah. extreme, but it makes the point. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. So, so there's, there's a, a clinical benefit, you know, to, to the patient and, and to yourself. I mean, I wouldn't want to miss something like that. I mean, if I had the ability to, to uh, catch something like that, I'd like to catch something like that. And you're going to catch it in a subclinical view before you get, you know, a clinical presentation. Yeah, I mean, and I look at it from even a less scientific point. But, you know, since we're talking about evidence, even if this person thought, as you said, they had this perception that they were, uh, their balance was getting worse. And then yeah. you showed them this evidence to show that, oh, actually, you know, your ankle is fine. Um maybe suddenly their balance would get better. You know, the, the whole psychological standpoint, if they had decided it's getting worse, then maybe that's why when they were just, you know, standing yeah. on one foot and being timed, maybe that's why it wasn't so great. But having evidence to show, actually, this is what's happening. This is how much you're swaying. This is how quickly you're yeah, swaying. It would refute their fears. Right. In, in that particular case. Yeah. Um, the other thing that we can do with it in a scenario like that when we are working on trying to increase somebody's balance is to use that information live time where we can see on the big screen in front of us, like an Etch-A-Sketch, we'll be marking how much we're swaying. Right. So that gyroscope can trace your sway and how much you're swaying. So you can use that visual feedback to try and tighten up the amount of sway. So the other thing that we'd use... Uh, uh, gyroscope accelerometer for is uh, precise range of motion. So for example, if we put it on your forehead and we went through all the ranges of motion, we get an exact range of motion. Right. Versus our eyeballing that we all do. <laughs> instead, yeah. of, instead of eyeballing, right? Although not to toot my own horn, I think my eyeballing's become pretty good over the last decade. <laughs> Obviously the technology is going to give you more precise reading. It does. And it keeps in check my professional biases, things that I, because of my clinical experience, what I think and what I know, you mean like I have that found, out, I I just found made. out that it's not quite exactly the same. Right. And okay. there's many of instances where the technology has shown me that I should certainly keep my mouth shut before I, before I say anything, because just when I think that I've got something figured out, somebody will come in and they don't respond to the intervention that I consistently have had results with prior. All my tricks don't work for that particular nervous system, if you will. Mm -hmm. And then I got to bust out, you know, a bunch of ideas on how I can get the results that I'm looking for. Or, as you mentioned already, refer out. Yeah. So, for example, I, I do a lot of testing with shoes, and I'll explain why. And I tested a number of sandals, brand name sandals. And here I am, I'm, I'm getting my professional opinion, if you will, <laughs> my clinical expertise. And I almost caught myself saying, with the next person coming up, you know, this is going to be a train wreck. Every time I test these particular brand of sandals, it throws the quality of gait out the window. And sure enough, that person steps up and they pull off a gate report that is unremarkable. There's nothing in it from an imbalance standpoint that I'd be looking at and be concerned with. But, you know, the six or seven that I tested up to that point were all train wrecks for those people. I don't want to say I don't trust my own treatments. I just don't know the effect of my treatments on each individual nervous systems, because we are as different as a th as as a as a fingerprint. Our gate print, yeah. biomechanical gate print, is different than the next person. That's a, just a really important point for people in general, therapists, patients, whoever, to understand that not every person or nervous system, as you're calling all of us, yeah. not everybody is going to respond to the same types of treatments as somebody else. Mm -hmm. So even if you think you know you've got the secret for treating this or that or whatever. 
It doesn't necessarily no. mean it's going to work. And that's o- that's okay. I think some therapists need to watch their ego sometimes. That's okay if your intervention isn't working. Better to know that it isn't working, though. Yeah. Well, you know, and back to the studies again, you know, we're, we're looking to, you know, quantify the effectiveness of technique A, B, or C, or modality A, B, or C. We're looking for studies to give us sort of the the answer or the the go ahead as to whether we should drop the money on that particular course or or modality and no clinical study written or ever to be written will ever tell you the effectiveness of your intervention on the person in front of you so i agree with that whatever flavor of intervention you throw at that person whether it's a modality like i choose to use or a particular manual technique of any description no study will ever tell you how you just affected that nervous system. So in the case where, you know, we have a rehab from a, an ankle fracture, you know, those are cases that a lot of rehab-oriented therapists would see. So, you know, here somebody comes in and they have, a, you know, they're rehabbing from a, an ankle fracture and the RMT gets their hands on them and they, they do a little this and they do a little that. Well, what, what did you do? They say they feel better. They f- say they move better. Maybe you even timed them for balance, but you don't really know until you take a, a closer look. And a closer look are these types of technologies that can can read into that. I've got a, a case study here. This guy's a chronic uh, ankle sprain, six months old, uh, weekend warrior. And this is his foot imprint before intervention. Well, none of you can see this, but uh, it's definitely very imbalanced. It doesn't look like a foot at all, actually. It looks like some type of abstract artwork sitting in front of me. Yeah, and you so you'll see this this circle here and the and these tracings. Those tracings are how much he's swaying when he's standing on that foot. And they measure the area, the mass area of sway, and then we look at uh, the velocity, so the speed of, of sway. So I go in, I do my thing, whatever that thing is, and I come back and I retask. And it looks like a foot. And it looks like a foot. <laughs> And as far as our numeric measurements of the amount of sway, it dropped down to 473 from 1,428. And their velocity dropped down to 44 from 134. Okay, so he's not moving as quickly or as much at all. That's right. Okay. So, so one, the patient looked at this and go, wow, okay, that's, that's awesome. To your point, could empower that person who believes otherwise. But for me, this was done when I first started uh, messing around with shockwave releasing joints. So for me, this is an indicator or it is a level of objective evidence that tells me or reaffirms my belief in Hilton's law, basically. So if a joint is restricted in its movement, the muscles and nerves crossing that joint are compromised. So I go in there with my release techniques and I do my treatment and here's my before and after. So that tells both myself that and the patient that they got value for what I did, there's some improvement here that that we can look at and we can measure. Like you said, it's objective evidence. Um, I do put a lot of value on subjective information. Um, I think in this type of industry, you have to. Uh, Yes, I I totally see how the technology can be helpful for yourself and for the patients and but I definitely put a lot of um, a lot of value in subjective information because sometimes I feel like if the client feels like this is working, this is working, they're going to be so um, they're going to be so gung ho to stick with your treatment plan yeah. and do. 
But I guess this is, again, just another sort of reaffirmation for those skeptics too. Like, look, this is working. And yeah. if they're going to stick to the treatment plan, yeah, they're, you know, they're going to get benefit out of it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I can definitely see how there'd be some people who would uh, want to see like, okay, what are you actually doing? Especially with yeah. something like Shockwave, which it's semi-new, I guess. It's, it hasn't been around that long. And I don't think a lot of people totally understand it. Even as I said, I've had one treatment. I didn't really understand what the guy was doing to me. I was just like, yeah. oh, this is cool. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I, I, I wrote a couple articles, one for Massage Therapy Canada and Canadian Chiropractor on that subject. But that because I was doing that, that that's what really got me into, let's look, at, let's look at something objective. Because if I'm blabbing off that I'm saying that I can do something, I need some kind of evidence. To me, I went in there with this particular case. I released the foot. The joint's that I assessed that were restricted. I released them. This is the results I I got. Mm -hmm. We have a much better uh, quality of, of foot impression and a huge decrease in sway and how fast that sway happened. So, Are you curious at all how expensive this technology yeah, is? Yeah, that, that's... <laughs> it's been killing me, but I yeah. wanted to hear about it first. It's. I mean, you don't have to give numbers, but just for your everyday manual therapist that was thinking this would be really cool to have at my clinic. How affordable is it? Uh, well, I think it's very affordable. You can, you can get a lot, you can get a lot of uh, value for 10,000 bucks. Okay. So I'm sure a lot of therapists would crawl under the table when they heard that. But um, for one, it's not going to be for every massage therapist out there. There's not everybody's interested in rehab or performance work in the slightest. Um, so it's probably not for them. But when we have entities like Green Shield that are starting to throw around words like measured outcomes, mm -hmm. this is where I think this type of approach can help. So in a big picture kind of scenario, if we had a handful of clinicians across the country that had equipment that we was standardized, and just so everybody knows, not all equipment that's available out there is of research quality right off the bat. So you got to do your homework as far as that goes. But let's say we standardize our equipment. We were able to identify conditions that we wanted to research and the criteria that had to be met. We could produce a bank of data that could be then collectively reviewed, peer-reviewed, and published. But that would be from the clinical outcomes standpoint where, where because of the advancement in technologies, we're now having these technologies in the hands of clinicians, not just researchers. So the clinicians get their hands on this and go, dang, you know, I took this course and, you know, and it's a neurological, this, that, or the, let's see, let's put it to the test. So mm. we get into this, let's, let's take some data, let's, let's do a reading and then apply our intervention and do one of these and hope to hell that it, you know, it gives us the parameters that we're looking for, right? But that's not always the case. It's very humbling in the, in the sense that, you know, even, well, this is my 25th year of practice. Um, it, it, it really makes me keep in check my, my biases and my professional opinions because until I read the data, I don't, I don't want to say I don't trust my own treatment. I just know that every nervous system is different. And I don't know that my particular approach on that day did what I thought it was going to do for that particular patient. So, so you use these technologies with every patient like you, pretty much yeah, yeah all of your yeah, assessment yeah pretty much okay so the force plates we've talked about um what other what other types of technology so the are you using? Uh, accelerometer gyrometer i right. mentioned uh, we can we can take an accurate uh 
uh, reading on range of motion of all of all uh, parameters. The they also give the quality of a muscle contraction, and this is where I'd be really interested in in testing some of these neural. I don't want to use a brand name, <laughs> but neural techniques, neural this that or whatever. It's one thing to to increase somebody's range of motion, but what if the quality of that contraction changed? Right? Meaning, is the contraction of that muscle, is it fluid or is it saccadic? What did your intervention just do? Did it increase the fluidity of, of that movement? Or did you do something neurologically that now it's saccadic, it's, it's hitching when it, when it contracts? We don't know unless we get the microscope out and take a look, which we can do. It can also give you lifetime neuromuscular feedback. So, for example, if I put, uh, if I put it on, um, on the sacrum, Got a belt that it goes to on, on the sacrum, uh, and I'm watching somebody squat. We're using the big screen in front of us, and we can see, like I said, just like an etch a sketch. As we drop the bum down, is it linear or is it, you know, moving to the left side or the right side? Mm-hmm. Okay, what's the quality of that squat? Because what we think we see with the eyes doesn't necessarily mean that it's the same as what the data is gathering. Like gait. Right, so that's why a visual gait analysis, to me, I mean, there's studies that show that it's not effective at all. When when you see what a, an accurate gait analysis device can do, for example, measuring step length precisely, you know, somebody comes in again, you know, ankle treatment, low back, hip, you do your treatment. Did you improve the quality of that gait, or did you degrade the quality of the gait? You know, so these kinds of things really bring into question, you know, things that I did. Uh, right before sporting events, where you get in there and you you do this, you do a little this and you do a little that, and now I look back and I go, geez, you know, how did I get the results that I got when it's pretty dicey to really not understand what's going on, especially right before an event. So I would use the equipment to determine the effectiveness of the work. So we can we can use this stuff like a, a BS detector if somebody's saying that they've got a technique that promises this or does this, that, or the other thing, we have the technology to test it. It's not just one thing to have technology. It's another thing to be able to know how to control your variables and essentially be able to compare apples to apples during your testing. It's another thing to uh, be able to interpret your data. And then the intervention part comes in. Can you change this nervous system to the better? Like, for example, the quality of the, of the gait cycle. Can you change it to the better, or did you just degrade that with the intervention that you you applied? So we don't know those things unless we're able to put those movements under the microscope. And the the gait analysis device that I use um, is used in research and precisely measures every aspect of the movement cycle. Back to the BS detector and the guruism stuff. It's nothing to make a short-term change in the nervous system. It's another thing completely different to be able to teach that nervous system, apply whatever intervention, and keep those parameters improved over the term. So from a biopsychosocial model standpoint that um, states we should be empowering the the patient to be able to ultimately be self-sufficient and not uh, practitioner-dependent, that would be my goal. So like I say, to have um, technology that assists me, that I can see that we're progressing to that goal, but also to be able to show when my techniques aren't working, but it could be used to put other people's techniques to 
to, to use. So if anybody ever wants to try their technique in a, in a testing scenario, then come on up to Barry and we'll try it. What's Hear impressive, <laughs> what's your, impressive your stuff out. <laughs> is, is not that there would be an immediate positive change at the moment of treatment or when the treatment was finished, is have that person come back in four weeks and maintain that change over time, right? That's what I'd be looking at. Is how do we get how do we get this nervous system balanced and keep it that way, if you will? For example, uh, back to uh, a gait analysis, uh, another case study. Um, Katie, thirty-four year old Winter Olympian, she came to me for deep anterior hip pain, chronic for six months. She had been through everybody at the Olympic Training Center as far as practitioners and trainers go, with no symptomatic relief. So she came. And the first thing I want to know is, you know, what what am I dealing with? What's who am I dealing with? I should say, as regards to her biomechanical footprint, how does she move? What's the quality of her of her movement? So, she's got deep anterior hip pain. I'm going to do something to that hip, right? So I want a, a pre-intervention baseline, and that hip's got to walk after I'm done. Did I improve the quality of her movement cycle, or did I degrade it? So I get in there and I check it. And one parameter that we look at specifically is a parameter called load response. And it measures the rotational parameters of the gait cycle. So it measures how much rotation happens when we're taking load onto our leg. And we are particularly vulnerable in that stage because we are experiencing ground force coming up the body. At the same time, we're transferring all our body weight onto one leg and then how much rotation happens. So that amounts to shear force in, in joints and tissue. We don't want any more than 5% rotation. So when, when we tested her on her own in her bare feet without anything on her feet, she was at 6.1% as far as her load response. So then I asked her to put on her shoes that she wears most often, which happens to be the one that she did all her dry land training in. And her load response, as soon as she put those shoes, uh, went up 927% increase in twist when she took load to her leg. So what does that mean? Well, it just means that there's a whole lot more twist happening there than than necessary. When we put that particular brand and model of shoes on her feet, it completely degraded um, the quality of her movement and could be the reason why all the other clinicians' treatments didn't work. Because as soon as they were done their treatment, she puts her shoes on and leaves and walks and goes and trains, carries on about her life. But each time she steps down, Load, twist, load, twist, load, twist, instead of load and go, load and go, right? It's load, twist, and go. We gave her three three shockwave treatments. We put her into a pair of shoes that made her better than her barefoot numbers, and she ended up resolving the issue and qualifying for the Olympic selection. So was it shockwave that, quote, regenerated that tissue? I, I don't know to be quite honest with you. But I do know one thing, we cleaned up the quality of our movement cycle that was a parameter that could potentially aggravate that anterior hip. Every time she stepped down, if there was too much load and rotation taking load onto her leg, that could have kept the scab open, if you will. And she just needed new shoes. <laughs> in this in this particular case, yeah, like those, those shoes were a nightmare. Yeah, and I guess that's something you would have never, it might be something we can speculate, maybe it's your shoes, but there is no yeah, way proof, to know that. I've been proven wrong so many times. There, there were qualities of shoes that I thought would be a standard across the board. I've been proven wrong on that. Shoe, shoes are, are a cookie cutter device. Millions are, are made. 
and they're put on an individual and an individual with a history. So it matters not the cost of the shoe or what it's made of. It matters on how that device in, in its in how it's compromised, interacts with that particular individual. So we can't say that, oh, Nike, this, that, or the other thing is no good across the board because somebody's going to come in, put the same shoe on that Katie tried on, and it's going to tighten up their numbers and improve the quality of their movement. Without that, I never would have known. It's possible that she could have resolved just from a shockwave treatment, but it's no different than, you know, when you go to get your tires put on. How many, honestly, how many people tell the guy, no, I don't want those balanced. Everybody says, I want my tires balanced. You put new tires on the rims, let's balance them because we don't want this to happen as we're driving down the highway. You may not notice it driving to Max Milk and back, oh, sorry, Circle K and back in town, but you take it out on the highway and you increase your step count, as it were, with a human being. And then all of a sudden you increase your step count and the quality of those step counts start to matter or start to play into things. Things like that, the other benefit of, of using technologies are, you know, a couple examples where, hey, you know, these case uh, scenarios worked out great. The other hidden benefit in, in, in using technology, especially when we're uh, measuring parameters of the nervous system, is that if anything ever happens to that person, whether it's a motor vehicle accident, a slip and fall, sports injury, anything, anything that, that, that is going to be a, a cognitive I- injury, we have objective baselines on nervous system parameters. Now, is one gait analysis, if you were to come in and I do a gait analysis, one test, and six months later you, you're concussed, how much validity do we put on that one particular gait analysis? Mm, maybe not so much. But the more samplings that we have, and especially when we're working with kids and teams in, in player development, we're measuring them week to week to week. And when little Johnny does bump his head in, in the playground, we can see changes, one, in the, in, in the, in the, the quality of the gate because it throws our step length out. Mm-hmm. Almost always our step length is going to go out with a cognitive impairment. So you get punched in the head, you don't walk the same, right? And nobody after getting knocked out in the UFC walks out of that ring the same way they walked in. Their awareness of where they place their feet is compromised. The same as if uh, from a chemical assault to the brain. If we drink too much, we don't, <laughs> we're not aware of the accurate placement of our feet from a symmetrical standpoint. So our gait, best case scenario, we want to be as symmetrical as possible for efficiency purposes because we can measure numerically how efficient something, something is. So when I say symmetry, what I really should be saying is optimal asymmetry. Because one, inherently the body is not symmetrical. Right from the embryonic development stage, the body tries to be symmetrical. And we see that with our coefficient of variability numbers. It, it measures how much variable is going on, for example, in our step length. So the body will spend a lot of energy trying to keep us balanced, to keep us even left and right leg. And to me, that's I, I can see homeostasis in action where the body is throwing a ton of energy trying to maintain uh, step length, for example. If anything happens, we have measurable objective data of components of the, co- of the concussion complex. So if you've read much into um, concussion stuff recently, they're saying there's no such thing as a concussion baseline. And that's because... We don't know the full extent of damage to a concussion, so how can we develop a baseline if we don't know the full extent of damage? 
but we do know components of that concussion complex that we know very well, gait being one of them, step length, um, speed of processing is another. We can accurately measure components of that concussion complex. So the kids that or people that I work with, if their speed of processing of cognitive processing goes down, they're not going out to play until we get that back up again. Do you work with a lot of teams and children? Athletes, yeah. yeah. We're doing, there's a bunch of studies going on right now with uh, autistic kids down in the U.S. with this equipment. I'll I'll leave you a study that uh, the doctor that I work with um, wrote, and it's it's a study that we did with a nine-year-old baseball team down in Mayo Park, New York. And essentially, we took the bad news bears, right, the the worst of the bunch, and uh, over a 12-week period of um, winter training, we took all their objective measurements, and each week they came in for an hour and a half of training, we worked on balancing the quality of their gait, their ability to think and move, so true agility, which is decision-based movement, speed of processing. And what we found was when we balanced out the body, we made the legs more symmetrical or ambulation more symmetrical. We balance, we're balancing out the brain as well. So we're starting to get reports from parents talking about better behavior out of their kids, better school marks out of the kids, that kind of thing. Because when we are balanced, we are more responsive as opposed to reactive. If we're out of balance, we're living more in our sympathetic nervous system. We're more reactive individuals as opposed to responsive. So when we can balance out our body, and what we find is that in order for us to be optimally asymmetrical left to right, that is served by being more symmetrical anterior to posterior. So igniting up our posterior extensor circuit helps to uh, make us more symmetrical left to right. Oh, you mean those lazy guys back there that don't do anything? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So if you think about a guy or a girl, for that matter, in a rowboat, and you've got two power plants to get you from point A to point B, and one's stronger than the other, you're going to spin in circles, yeah? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So the same thing with the pelvis is if you have one leg, one power plant that's not operating the same as the other side, and, and again, these are, the, these are subclinical measurements that you can't begin to see with your eye because if I walked across the room, you would never be able to tell me what my step length was. No. Ever. Of course so not. when we do that, we balance them out. Just like in a rowboat, we would go straight forward if our power plants were of equal power. If our timing and coordination was off, we may not spin in circles, but we're not going to efficiently go forward. So that's why we look at the quality of the bipedal nervous system, if you will. I find the link to behavior very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, we had this one lady, she came in, she's uh, early 30s. She had no vocabulary whatsoever. Basically, all she did was grunt and bang her head. Highly autistic. In six months, her vocabulary went to 290 words. And she is one of the fastest individuals, apart from a very famous uh, professional quarterback, one of the fastest people on agility, being able to recognize information and move her body. And once we started working on balancing her nervous system out, if you will, then she became more balanced and she became more verbal. She, it's not like she started busting out in, in sentences by any stretch, but she now has a vocabulary of 290 words. Wow. And I've, I've tested, uh, she's faster than this one young guy I'm working with. He's 13. He's supposed to be, 
you know, one of the best hockey players in the country, and she's faster than he is as far as being able to recognize information and move her body. So cool, man. The human brain and body, all of it amazes me every day, even though this is what I do for a living. Yeah. Do you have any questions? You've been just sort of quietly yeah, observing. Yeah, I want to know what you have to say to the group of therapists that say balance makes no difference in terms of symmetry or you're saying optimal asymmetry Mm -hmm. makes no difference at all movement as long as someone could function then that's okay because i think they miss a huge part about performance yeah because they're not they're not looking at the idea of optimal performance, but I'm, I'm really curious to exactly. what you have to say about that. Yeah, so so you've heard the talk about posture, and posture doesn't matter this, and posture doesn't matter that. Yes, and I have. We, we have discussed it, yes. Yeah, 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 all that, all that kind of stuff. All all's I can say is I would measure that person, see where they're at, and in most cases, when we're looking at physical performance, when we improve that posture, we get more efficient movement which means you're faster, which means you're stronger from an athletic attribute standpoint. So, quote, does it matter for the average everyday person? Maybe not. Maybe not. Yeah, and we discussed that too. I think there's a little too much emphasis on pain, but performance. Oh, yeah. Performance, this stuff matters. It it makes the difference between being world-class and not. It makes the difference between an autistic person being nonverbal and having 290 words, apparently. You know, to your point, um, posture and performance, and I don't want to say the the doctor's name, but that discusses it, but basically makes the point that and shows a picture of of this guy who's got uh, scoliosis, mm-hmm. who's a world-class powerlifter. Mm-hmm. See, that doesn't matter. This guy's a world-class powerlifter. Look what he can do with his body, and that's awesome. My point is, I, I wonder what he could do if he didn't have that. For sure. Right. For sure. You take all the same variables in the mix and you eliminate his scoliosis, and let's see now what type of a real world-class powerlifter he can possibly be. Yeah. So, so those things make a difference and does it make a difference in, in the average everyday person? Okay. Let's go back to the guy in the rowboat and we got two legs not operating equally. Oftentimes, and and here's where my professional opinion is coming in, is that contributes to the twist in the pelvis and the functional leg length discrepancy. Okay. So we go in there as therapists and we do our this or that and whatever. And, and maybe the Cairo has, has a go at them and they, you know, do their thing and whatever. And nobody's done anything to the nervous system per se, other than what was done on the, on the table in that particular treatment. And then that person is set out into the world and they come back when they're out again and they need help again and need help again. I've been calling it the riddle of the twist. Why do we continue to twist? Why do we continue to tr- twist after our interventions and we come back? How long did neurotechnique X last, right? If we just looked at leg length discrepancies, right? Functional leg length discrepancies. Does it keep coming back? Does it keep coming back? Or can we teach them how to do something that they are able to control that twist and they are more balanced left to right leg? Back to the guy in the rowboat, if you're not equal in, in your power plants, in your legs, something's got to give right? It doesn't fly in the face of performance, even at a mechanical level, which leads me to to just bring up a point where is, is I feel like right now in our profession, we're at a stage where the motorsport industry was in the early 80s, when the standard for a high performance team like Lamborghini would be to go out and find the guy, Nick the Wrench, right? The guy who had the most experience, right? He had the best reputation, or she for that matter. Mm-hmm. That's what they went for. 
And then these guys started coming along with computers and they put, started putting sensors on this thing. And all of a sudden, Nick the Wrench wasn't so important anymore because they didn't count on, on Nick's intuition and what he thought and what his experience was. It went by what the data said. And now when you go to uh, motorsport performance, there's, a, there's, there's like a mini grandstand where people who monitor laptops, they just sit there and monitor a given system of that, of that mm -hmm. automobile. And at times they can fine-tune on the go, depending on what it is. They may be fine-tuning the driver. They may be fine-tuning the driver with regards to hydration or whatever. But I think we're, we're there now. Like I've been dealing with technology apart from Shockwave, the assessment technology since 2012. So I'm seven years in and I see that we're, we're, we're sort of just getting educated on the fact that there are technologies out there that uh -huh. are legitimate and we can use them. But we're also at a time where the old school may be not so interested in new technology, right? like they were back then. But whether we like it or not, whether I like it or not, technology is coming. And this generation of kids coming up, like these kids that we worked with down in New York, those nine-year-olds, first of all, they went on to beat the league champions 14 to one their first game back. Um, we measured their cognitive speed. Uh, 709 milliseconds was the average processing speed. And in 12 weeks, it was down to sub 32 milliseconds. So those kids could see that ball coming from a mile away. It was like a beach ball compared to what it was before. So that's pretty impressive for, you know, these kids to be able to to do that. Plus get all the benefits like their parents had discussed. Two of the kids came off Ritalin um, and so forth. So Technology is coming whether we care for it or not. So the old school experienced RMTs. I guess may as well embrace it. Well, in my experience, the at the college level, they don't want anything to do with it because it's an extra expense. For for me, as somebody that's intimate with with the profession, I, I see that uh, technologies have increased significantly in the last five years. Um, there's conventions down in Vegas that have three buildings full of wearable technologies. So, whether we like it or not, what if somebody came in? into your clinic, pulled out their phone and said, oh, here's the results of my, uh, my wearable technology. It says my left leg is operating at, uh, you know, 30% of my right leg. And you go, oh, okay, whatever. But my point is that technology has come so quick and fast that it's gone to the end user. It's, it has skipped our teaching institutions. Yeah. Right? It's gone straight to end user. And, and this younger generation, are, are, they're informed. They're a data generation. They want to see what the heck is going on. And so, you know, my hope is in the future that, you know, a, a certain amount of, of uh, RMTs will engage in technology. Um, one, to keep up with the times. But two, in, in hopes that we, at some point in time, can build a database of, of measured clinical outcomes so that we can give the green shields, if you will, something more than just um, trials here and there. But, yeah, they'll, f they'll find a reason to hate us anyway. Yeah. Well, the whole thing, like <laughs> this uh, bias, um, somebody posted on a evidence-based the other day, confirmation bias, we all have it, we all do it, is a tendency to pay attention to and accept information which supports existing beliefs Yeah. and dismiss information which conflicts with existing. So until companies like Green Shield recognize the fact that a massage therapist doesn't just do the Swedish massage that they were taught in the first three months of school that right. were throwing a raft of different, in most cases, a raft of different 
techniques at the given condition, how can we, one, measure apples to apples, right? We would have to look at the collective effectiveness of massage therapists that are using different techniques, but as long as we standardize our research and our equipment, we could produce legitimate data and outcomes. This is all new to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not that I hadn't heard of some of these technologies, obviously. Um, but yeah, this is this is really interesting. And I see what you're saying, how this isn't going to be for everybody. But even Absolutely just as not. you said, having some sort of data available. We have to have some sort of presence or some sort of engagement in new technology. It simply doesn't make sense for a profession to be ignoring technology that is associated with their profession. It, it simply doesn't make sense because we are going to be tasked with hand over the data from, from entities like Green Shield. What do you have? So until they recognize like this bias, they have to recognize that we all practice differently. So to put everybody and classify them as massage therapists and we all throw the same treatment at condition X and here's the outcomes is not... Is not no, reality. And, and that's what everybody does do is we do get lumped in. I mean, Walt Fritz said it the best, just saying the fact that our title is massage therapist, people hear the word massage, one picture comes into their mind. Exactly. And, and I think slowly we're getting out of that. Although it seems like therapists are now at war with each other. So yeah. I don't know. Well, and that that's why I, I got into like the sports end of things is because that there was always numbers involved, right? So for a lot of years, I worked on the world's strongest man uh, circuit, and every single athlete that I worked with, everybody knew what their PR was for a given discipline. So if you come in and you do something different than what they're used to, you apply intervention X, whatever that intervention is, and all of a sudden, their PR goes up 40 pounds. That's not just luck. Right. Going up in in the world of strongman, you jump jump forty pounds in a discipline. Mm -hmm. It's like time to pee in a bottle. You're speaking Mark's language yeah. right now. Well, He's I, well, obsessed did, with athletes. We did a podcast on this before. Yeah. When I pretty much I just went off on a rant, and I was like, sport has it right. Like athletics and sport and anyone involved in sport performance, if therapy, if, if conventional therapy can even just take a freaking page out of what sport does, you're on the right path. But for some reason, conventional therapy, they always put up a wall and there's resistance to what, what yeah, sport does. Because all, all this technology came out of sports science. Exactly. That's why yeah. when we were off mic, I'm like, when you were telling me about your equipment, I was like, hey, is this the stuff that you're going to see at a university exercise physiology yeah, yeah. lab, right? Yeah, right? yeah. And like, that's the idea here. If, if therapy can just take conventional therapy, just take a freaking page out of what sport does, you're on the right path. You are on the freaking right Yeah. Path. Why wouldn't we want more information? Exactly. Especially if the equipment that we're using has been proven to be accurate. That That's the key, that we have to be using equipment that has been tested to be accurate and better yet, being used itself for research. Okay? So, we, we take this technology and all of a sudden we're going, wow, us, us practitioners, we, we now have research equipment in our hands. I wonder if what my technique does to the quality of the balance or the quality of the gait or this, that, or the other thing. And that's where it really becomes interesting, right? And, and one thing that I always loved about Strongman was the fact that it was a numerical game. And mm -hmm. if I did something that was out of, out, of, out of the ordinary, I applied an intervention of some description, and we started seeing change, at the time, that's all I had. Because in the early 90s, you know, I started working with a, uh, a chiropractic sports medicine team. And basically, that was just before ART came in. 
Mm-hmm. And everything was chiropractic, chiropractic, chiropractic. And there was no, not a lot of credence to soft tissue. Then ART came in and all of a sudden the docs that were, you know, pushing the chiropractic were now experts in ART. Yep. And because they were a doctor, they, they were better at it than an RMT. And, and I was, was tired of this nonsensical bullshit, basically. And, and, you know, I started doing what they were doing. Okay, well, let's test your SOA, a muscle test, right? Right? And you can't hold the psoas, so we're going to adjust your SI joint, and we're going to go back and retest it. And I'm going, okay, well, I can't adjust it, but I can do some soft tissue stuff, but why don't I use the same trick, mm-hmm. right? I'll get in there and a muscle test. Oh, wow, great. You know, so we know how accurate muscle testing is, and that's why it's used every day in clinical research, right? So I had to get away from that, and, and I had to, like, just stick with the numbers and, and get away from, from guesstimating and and prove our worth as a soft tissue therapist, if you will. Develop my own approach to, to soft tissue uh, release that I thought was different than uh, ART, and I applied that um, in the field with, uh, with sports. Again, once technology started coming around, I needed to to get as much objective data that, that um, justified what I was saying and what I was doing. Cool. Yeah. I don't know that I have much else to say. This is... Now I feel like I need to go and do research. Really? <laughs> okay, <laughs> so, so a quick, just a, a, a quick thing here. Um, By the way, for all of you who can't see, he's left me homework. <laughs> no, he, you know what's funny? is Here's the technology guy coming in with handwritten notes yep, and, yep. and photocopies and stuff like that. And it's like, I'm, I'm such a geek for numbers, but when it comes to other, I'm not good at that. Um, anyway, so, so here's, here's kind of an example of where we are. You give X amount of your time to researching, however much time that is through the week to look at articles and such, right? Mm-hmm. So we come across an article, and it's an interesting article that talks about uh, the homunculus and sensory distribution through the feet and how it's related and seems to be very technical and well-written. And, you know, we go ahead and look and, okay, it's written by a naturopathic doctor. So, you know, some people are going to kind of give a little credence to that designation, what have you. So I do some more research. So I, I come across this uh, document that, you know, if anybody's in- interested, I can I can show them. But uh, the foot core system. And this particular document was put out by the British Journal of Sports Medicine and has participation from researchers from Harvard, among other um, highly recognizable uh, universities. And so here here's where we're left high and dry for me if I don't have technology. I look at Article 1. That's awesome. It seems to be spot on from a science standpoint. It was written by a naturopathic doctor. There's one person making comment on this article. So now I get this study, an understanding of the foot core system, first journal of sports medicine, so forth. And now it's got all the doctors, the research doctors on this that participated in this. So I pay a little bit more attention to it because it's essentially the same same subject, right? You go through this and wonderful description of, of the foot, the layers of intrinsic uh, muscles and the job of intrinsic and extrinsic muscles and so forth. And what it comes down to, what interests me most is it, it discusses the participation of sensory input to, to mid-arch with regards to proprioception. And they, they talk about how um, the thickness, the cross-sectional thickness of the intrinsic muscles increase when you exercise them. They talk about how that process is reversed by bracing and cushioning the foot. So it talks about the potential drawbacks of orthotics and footwear. Mm-hmm. 
and it makes the connection between the foot and the core. Awesome, well written. Also talks about the fact of how your balance changes by just by putting on a pair of thin socks. So with the equipment that I have, I could put on a seminar where I show live time the results of mid-arch stimulation, and we can see it. We can put something in the shoe in the mid-arch, and we can watch what happens to the nervous system. So the idea would be we get somebody on, on the treadmill, and we monitor their gait, and we can look at parameters. We can see they're only changing so much. They're bouncing around just a little bit. But then when we put something mid-arch, all hell breaks loose, or these parameters start to change. So we can see what it does to the quality of the gait. So with technology, I can follow up with this well-written uh, research paper and test what they're talking about. This report here is something that is produced from what we call the drift, drift po- protocol. And with the same device that we measure gait, we put it on the floor and we have the patient jump up and down on one leg as high and as fast as they can in both the X and Y axis. And it gives us a raft of numerical data, including power, the flight, the height of the, height of the jump, the contact time, how, how long the foot's on the ground for before you generate the energy to bring it up and so forth. So we're able to assess it almost like a gun in the sense that we got a 45 Magnum, we got lots of power, but our dynamic ability to aim that, we're all over the place because when we jump up and down, this is the area used on the left leg. This is the area used on the right leg. The dynamics balance control between left and right leg is off. So we got a really powerful gun. We can jump high in the air, but we can't aim it. Nor, when we look at contact time, we have to spend a lot of time on the ground in order to get that height, right? So we got a powerful gun that we can't aim and we can't pull the trigger on that gun really quick. So what's the use of that high-powered gun? If you can't aim it, you can't pull the trigger quick. It doesn't amount to much. But these are the parameters that we can read, and that test would be the one that I would do. Uh, socks on, socks off. Look at, let's look at dynamic balance control, and let's measure it. Right? Let's look at mid-arch stimulation that they talk about in, in this uh, British Journal uh, article, and let's look at it. See what happens to, to mid-arch stimulation. Does it affect your step length? Does it affect your load response? What parameter of the gait cycle does it affect? And is it a positive or a negative effect? Mm-hmm. So, so interesting. It, sound, it, can, it can sound very sciencey and so forth, but we have to remember our, is that everybody out there walking around, one is wearing shoes. The vast majority are, are walking around with a functional leg length discrepancy, and we're not balanced. We're not balanced in our movement cycle. Uh, for the most part, we're emotionally not balanced. We Most people are spending more time living in the the sympathetic side of the nervous system as opposed to the, the more balanced uh, parasympathetic side. So these things do matter to somebody who's not an athlete, right? When I'm trying to deal with somebody that comes in, I don't know, maybe they're my age, mid-50s, chronic SI joint pain, you know, all the chiro treatments don't resolve at all the physio, whatever. Okay, so I don't want to do what everybody else did. First, I want to measure you and all of a sudden, I find out that you know his load load response is like crazy. Like he's twisting too much when he takes the load onto his leg. Again, back to back to Katie, we could have been throwing the the best treatment in the world at that, but the minute you put the wrong pair of shoes on, when you step down, too much twist, too much twist, too much twist. So it can be applied across the populace, right? Even even the cognitive stuff with uh, 
with seniors. I, I work with a group of seniors. They want to come in and brain train in the lab. So they come in and they, they compete against each other on how fast they can do these things. That's amazing. And the cool that. thing is, is that they're using their bodies at the same time. So with, with the system that I have, I've, I've got a, a clinical rack that the, the, the lights are up on the, on the frame. And yes, you have to move your body in order to go touch the lights. But I can also take those lights and put them on tripods and have people move around and see how long it takes them to move their body in a linear fashion or rotation fashion. doesn't really matter. Are there a lot of other therapists doing some of the things that you're doing? Do you know, like? Do you have a network of people, or are you sort of the one and only? If they are, they're not massage therapists. Well, that's what I mean. I I don't know many massage therapists who go as in depth when it comes to the empirical evidence as you do. So, do you know of any other? I don't. No. No. Okay. No, I don't. And I know that the the equipment that I use, um, I'm the only one in Canada that's using them. The the brands of equipment that I do use and that it's well known in in the industry that sadly Canada is far behind in the use of technologies with regards to assessment. So in the states this is a little more common practice. Oh for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, especially with the athletic testing. Yeah. Even just when it comes to anything anything related to sport performance. Mm-hmm. I mean Sport Canada what how and what they do and how they treat their athletes is night and day compared to what you see in the States. Yeah. And there's a lot of political BS that's going on here in Canada sport wise. And the one doctor I work with in particular um, has a disdain for, and will not sell any equipment to those organizations because they went around his back to get equipment through Europe. Mm. So you also can't play games with you know, distributors and what have you. And if you're trying to skirt somebody and, okay, well, so this guy gets his friend to get it shipped to England and he brings it over. He didn't pay the taxes on it. Doc finds out about it. Well, now comes time. Well, we need training on this equipment. Guess you're out of luck. Man, and I thought there wasn't so many politics in our industry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's politics <laughs> There's for politics sure. and everything. For sure. Um, but, is there anything else that we haven't, uh, we haven't touched on today? Yeah, just today. this little... Uh, graphic that I pulled off of the evidence-based Facebook page. And my question to you, either one of you know, is this a standardized diagram of the evidence-based practice model? Is it a, sorry, repeat that question. Is this a standardized image of what the evidence-based practice model represents? I guess so. Best research evidence, clinical expertise, patient values and Preferences equal evidence-based practice. Yep. Oh, Mark's got it up on a screen. Exact image that you're just showing. Oh no, me. I pulled it up from the Facebook. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so here's my comments ab- about this. Is I'm thinking if if this is related just to to the manual therapies profession because I I don't see this as being accurate when it comes to the medical profession. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, and and the reason why I say that is is that doctors are using technologies and have used technologies for a number of years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? This thing called a a thermometer. (laughs) Right? You mean you don't just use the back of your hand, mom? Exactly. (laughs) Right? So as a mom, you probably have a thermometer at at the ready. Of course I have a thermometer. Of course. Okay. So does does that thermometer tell you whether your child has meningitis or not? No. No, it does not. No. 
It tells you when it's time to go to the hospital to get somebody to look at it further. Just like that balance test and and the potential scenario of the um, brain cancer, that would be an indicator as to when to, you know, time for you to see somebody else because it's this could be so much together now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so if you went to the doctor and oh, little Susie's sick, she got a temperature, and the doctor put the back of his hand on her forehead. Would you want to run away? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I would. <laughs> so then it comes time to, for a blood test. All right. Doctor takes some blood. Just looks at it, swirls it around no, in a test no, tube. They, they'll just look looks... at it. They'll rub it in their fingers. They'll look at it. And it looks and okay they'll, to they'll me. Smell it, and they'll go, you have X, right? Oh. That would frighten the life out of anybody and you'd be running out of the doctor's office. Okay. Yeah. So I'd mentioned about the use of technology in an evidence-based uh, form one time. And the comment was, okay, I get the equipment is calibrated and accurate, but show me the study that says using equipment like this is of benefit to the practice. So I honestly didn't know how to respond to that. Um, and I didn't want to, like I said, I don't have time to, you know, interact too much on that kind of stuff, but I read it to, to have an understanding of the pulse of, of the industry. But I did take four hours of my life to search and I, and not to say that it's not there. It's just that I couldn't find it in four hours looking for studies that the use of a thermometer <laughs> and an x-ray increased the clinical outcomes or benefited the clinical outcomes of the physician using said technologies. I couldn't find it. I'm just saying that, not that it's not there. I wish you all could see Brian and Mark's (laughs) face right now, because this is exactly as we talk about all the time on the podcast is like, I'm all for evidence and I'm all for research. And like yourself, I do read research and it's interesting to me. However, I don't know why it has become like the gold standard for some people that if there's no research behind it, it's nonsense. Well, yeah. And and so that's, that was my point about the the bias Yeah. In, in, in my opinion, the insurance companies are biased in the sense that massage, right? Well, the insurance companies want to keep money in their pockets. Yeah, it's, it's nothing to do with research they don't with even them. Care. They don't care. Yeah, they're just yeah. using that as a, a tool, you know, to support yeah. them them doing what they're doing. But another bias could be that your response is and always is show me the study. Yeah, show me the study. That's absolutely a bias. So if there's no study, then right. what? So what I'm trying to trying to do is just to educate people that there is another avenue to valid evidence. Right. And it doesn't always come from a, a quote, proper clinical trial. Mm-hmm. And I think it's worth looking at. I've got to be honest with you, I'm very surprised that people who are um, so hardcore about research and evidence-based practice therapists are reluctant to embrace something like technology. Isn't this giving them exactly what they're always asking for? Well, I consider my, myself like the ultimate skeptic. I like I said back in the '90s, I got tired of all the woo-woo stuff and 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 no credibility, and I and I made a concerted effort to be as credible as I could. And um, I, I I don't understand why, but I know that the flavor of the last couple of years is show me the study, show mm-hmm. me the study. And just for everyone listening, because you can't see uh, what Scott has added to this diagram for evidence-based practice on top of best research evidence, clinical expertise, patient values and preferences, he's added a fourth arrow, which is measured clinical outcomes. Right. And 
I, yeah, I, I actually very much agree with this. If we're going to be so dead set on everything has to be based in research and evidence, and why Patrick, don't we have any that's right. measured clinical outcomes? If our narratives have to be um, scientifically accurate, then should our assessments not be? So with, with this, when I look at this, this image, it's not a balanced image. To me, I could say it's not a balanced approach. It's a three-sided. If we add a fourth arrow to it, it now becomes balanced and symmetrical. And I and I do believe that the medical system is practicing this because of the examples that I gave you. Absolutely. So, I'm, by the way, going to Google uh, studies on the use of a thermometer later. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, I, I'm not saying that it's not there. I'm just saying I spent four hours of my life trying to figure that out because, you know, I honestly didn't know how to answer the, the fella and I didn't want to get into you know, any kind of slinging or anything like that. But I do find that that is a common response. And all I'm saying is all our answers will not be found in a, quote, proper clinical trial. Oh, we, yeah. we, we had that run in before. So we had a gentleman on on our podcast. Um, he was doing a, what was his course on Adam? It's something to do with posture. Because right, we had a whole conversation posture. about posture yep. yeah. and about uh, biomechanics. Yep. And these people tore him to pieces. And all I could say was, why are we ignoring physics? Like, yeah. this, this, it, like, it's it was called like, a, show me the study where it shows that posture is going to be related to this, this, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah, then yeah, I was just exactly. like, well, like, this is just basic physics, man. You change, you change the alignment, you change the moment arm, you change the resistance arm, you change the, the force capability. That's it. The, the, there's that's all there's, there's your evidence. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I know that you said you're not big in social media and all of those things, but if there is anybody listening that wanted to get in touch with you, what's the best way? Uh, email me, hptherapy at rogers.com. If anybody's interested in doing an event like that where we we can show live time, things of that nature, like balance control, dynamic balance control, mid-arch stimulation, what it does to the nervous system, I'd be up for that. Yeah. Well, you and, you and I to need to talk off mic then. We need to talk off mic. Maybe. Yes, I got some things I'm thinking do, about. We've got some ideas and we have some. You might be ideas. interested in. Yeah. We'll chat. <laughs> okay. That's awesome. All right. Well, everyone who's listening, I think I think that's it. I think this has been a lot of stuff to think about. Yeah, but there, there is a lot of stuff. And if people do have questions, uh could definitely do it again. All right. Yeah. Thank you, Scott, for coming You're in welcome. and hanging out with us and coming all the way from Barrie. Did you have to travel through snow? Uh, not a lot, no. No. <laughs> no. By the way, for anyone who's not Canadian, I think of Barrie as like the Arctic. Like no. it's not even that far outside of <laughs> Toronto. And I hear someone's from Barry and I just assume they're covered in snow all the time. But that's what you people south of the border think of us here in Toronto. That's so right. yeah. ice, ice houses. Yeah. We wear animal pelts. <laughs> I, I met some people down in um, uh, Kansas one time and I, I told them that I work for the polar bear patrol <laughs> in, the, in the city of Barry. <laughs> or sorry, in the city of Toronto, and and it was our job to drive around at at night with with jeeps that, that have big lights and guns on on the on the roll bars to keep the polar bears. Did out you of. actually have them going? I almost had the guy in his pocket waiting. To, like to pay me for a, a bearskin rug. Oh my! Because God. we got to keep the bears out of the garbage, right? So we got access to polar bearskin rugs. So. <laughs> wow! <laughs> Sorry, Americans. It's not really. <laughs> it's not really that cold here. <laughs> I don't know. I'm pretty cold. 
Anyway, yep. I think that's a wrap today, yeah? Right on, right on. So thanks again for hanging out, Scott. It's been awesome. I love uh, I love hearing all the cool stuff that you're up to. Please, guys, get in touch. And uh, yeah, take take him up, you know, shoot him an email. Say you want to see what your stuff does. Put it put it to the test. Mm-hmm. Right on, right on. You guys have been listening to two massage therapists in a microphone. Peace. <laughs>